Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 10, Angels and Demons, where we will be looking at chapter 22 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of seasonal generosity. As a reminder, each week we'll be examining a section of the book through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our lives. Then we'll take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week, And then after that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. As a note to our community, we would like to remind you to be nice to your fellows, be nice to us, and also be nice to the author of a book that you seem to love. One last thing, we assume that you have read The Name of the Wind as well as its follow-ups So from here on out, there will be spoilers for The Name of the Wind, The Wise Man's Fear, The Lightning Tree, and The Slow Regard of Silent Things. Granted, if you didn't know that by now, (laughs) I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. They might have started on episode 10. I don't know why. So now it's time for us to do our quick 30-second recap. It's my turn here. Because I'm not a coward, I have elected to go for 30 seconds as opposed to the 45 that Phoenix insists on. It's what we agreed on at the beginning. Also, I will continue to do it in rhyme. Because you like doing things on challenge mode. And it's more fun that way. For some of us. I think it's more fun for our listeners too. I know that the audio from it is in episode 9, but as of recording episode 10... Somebody hasn't yet had their smoothie. Look, people are going to take more delight in my suffering because I've set myself up for a better challenge because I also think that it's going to be better content. If my suffering is what facilitates that, I'm willing to make that sacrifice, unlike some people. I don't know. What kind of sadist likes to watch people in pain? The internet. (laughs) Touche. So do you have a timer ready? Okie dokie. Artichokey. In three, two, one, go. It's midwinter day, so Kvoth tries to make hay, on the side of the hill where the people have bills. Though his returns more than double, Kvoth soon finds himself in trouble when a guard beats him up, and he is forced to leave without sup. He staggers back waterside and falls in the snow where he could have died, if not for the demon lord's gift, which gives his balance a lift. Kvoth bides a blanket in food, but his health is still rude. He goes back to Trappus's floor door, where he collapses on the floor. Except he doesn't. That's not the point. You made it in 23 seconds. Yes. That's the point. That's the point, but you're being inaccurate. Yeah, deliberately so. It's a poetic license. But this podcast is all about pedantry, so meh. But this part was poem, so poetic license takes precedence. Two swallows a smoothie. Nope, just the one. But you like people watching you suffer. But I like beating the clock more. Which you did. So maybe, maybe this time. But also maybe no peanut butter. (laughs) That look on your face. A look made for podcasting. Yes. So 
We realize that while Kvothe is in Tarbian, and even a bit before, the recaps and the discussions are going to be pretty heavy. We do hope that you enjoy all of our suffering and that you can laugh a little bit because we're laughing along. We promise in a couple of weeks the tone will lighten up. But we are going to get into yet another very tough part of the book. And I have chosen to make this into smaller chunks for a few reasons. One of those reasons is because it is tough for me to get through these sections. And I don't know why, but it feels easier to chunk it up. But I also think that these are very important sections. And to gloss over them would be to do a disservice to the text. I think they also go a long way towards explaining why Kvothe makes some of the decisions that he makes. Because a lot of the neural pathways that are developed during his time on the streets are things that he does not easily overcome. And that's true of regular people too. I agree with you. So knowing that it will be a little bit of a downer, Let's get into it. This section, we see Kvothe experiencing the class divide in Tarbian, specifically between the folks of Hillside and the folks of Waterside. And this class divide, I think, in many ways mirrors what we see in modern-day American society as well. I do agree with that. I think there's a lot of blindness that people who are well-off have towards people who are not. And if we do see them, we don't see them as people. We see them as piteous creatures. Yeah, and that's in many ways how I think a lot of the folks in Hillside view Kvothe at best. If they see him. That's the good scenario. The folks of Hillside tend to view poverty, it seems, more as an aesthetic problem rather than a moral problem with their society. A shopkeeper essentially calls the cops on Kvothe because he's going to scare away the customers. Specifically, Kvothe overhears the words customers. Who's going to buy chocolate with? It's so sickening. I think there is a deliberate choice on the part of Patrick Rothfuss to make the shopkeeper someone who sells chocolate, which is essentially a frivolity. It's a luxury good for the wealthy. It's not something that just anyone can afford. So I think maybe we should rewind a little bit and go from the beginning. Both of you and I have noticed these themes within this chapter, and there's a reason that we've chosen to just chunk that one into a chapter. I think the class consciousness that we see in this part of the book is a lot of what separates the world building of this story from what we would see in other fantasy novels. This is something that is more sympathetic to the lower classes than the upper. Starting off with Kvothe learning which restaurants throw away the best food. We have known people who dumpster dive, whether by choice, which is an odd choice, but it's a choice, or by necessity. We know people who have lived in cars. I very nearly did. There is a different feeling and a different view of people when you are looking upward towards the people who have more than you. But I also find that the people in those situations tend to be more generous, like 
really generous and their generosity represents a greater part of their means than the people who are well-to-do and don't give to the people who aren't. So we go through this list of both figuring out where the best places to get food are. Starting off with restaurants that throw away edible food. The Church of Telu. But the church often has conditions on its generosity. Yeah, they're asking for prayers or... Then he says that there are some darker rumors that he doesn't actually explicate, but given what we know about the abuses that have occurred in churches in our contemporary society, we can make some inferences. Especially some inferences on the attitudes of the author. Yes. He says he learned how to hide. Honestly, depending on where you are, I don't think it's that hard to hide from society if you are one of the people that people want to ignore. Though hiding from the people who are on the lookout for you, like guards, is harder. He has essentially one valuable possession, and it's Ben's book, and he doesn't even like it, but he keeps it safe because it's the only tangible thing he has that links him back to his old life. And it's the one thing he has remaining that was actually a gift of love. That is an interesting point to bring up. He comes from a place where he is taught love. He is taught that he is safe, that he is cared for, that he doesn't have to worry. The adults will take care of him. And it is ripped the fork away in two seconds flat. And now he has to learn all of these things that no 12-year-old should ever have to learn. It's painful to look at from the perspective of an adult. I had similar situations happen when I was a kid, when I was 10 years old. I wouldn't have gone to school. I would not have gotten there on time. I wouldn't have caught the bus. I wouldn't have had food. I wouldn't have had any of those things had I not done them myself. And at 10, I thought that I was adult enough where that was normal. Like, I should be self-sufficient. I'm 10 years old. And it was because my dad was in the hospital and my mother is not a very nice person and should not have been raising a child. And she didn't have the wherewithal to care for another human being. But looking back, we have friends who have kids who are nearly 10 years old. They're tiny. They're very, very little. And I would not for the life of me ever ask a 10 year old to make sure that they didn't go hungry during lunchtime, to make sure that they were the ones who knew how to get to their bus on time because no adult was going to help them, that they had to set their own alarm clock and do everything in the morning by themselves. Kids are smarter than we give them credit for, but they still need the security and they still need that place of love. That's a very good point. In the next paragraph, there is a description of how you can describe something like this to another person, but it's like the ocean. Until you have been in the middle of it, you don't know how small you are. Growth feels very, very small right now, and he also feels powerless. 
yeah, he's in the position of the lowest rung of society at this point. He's essentially living by his wits and whatever he can scrounge together, there is no safety net for him at this point. The description of Tarbians also something that I would like to point out, that there are thousands of little neighborhoods that make it up, a patchwork, if you will. And we've lived in Seattle. Seattle has thousands of little neighborhoods, each with their own personality. And I'd say that the downtown core is the one that is the least unique of all of it. Nobody can afford to live there. Absolutely true. No one can afford to live there, and it shows. And it's kind of the same way here with hillside versus waterside. The affluent side of things are so clean. There's nowhere to hide. And it's also pretty clear that the constabulary works not to protect the population as a whole, but to protect the interests of the moneyed few. They're not there to make sure that everyone is safe from violence and harm. They're there to make sure that the wealthy can continue to be wealthy. And continue to feel secure in their wealth. In a bit of social commentary, Waterside is described as someplace where people are poor, which makes them beggars and thieves and whores. Hillside, where people are rich, those beggars are solicitors. Those thieves are politicians, and those whores are courtesans. The same sets of skills are at play, but they're given greater respect and legitimacy in Hillside just by virtue of the amount of money involved. In Quoth's life, two months of survival in Waterside is almost like forever. He's 12 years old. When we're younger, our perception of time is different, and two months is a very, very long time. As you get older, two months doesn't seem as long, but two months of having to survive a city without help, that's torture. It's getting to the point where it's midwinter. It's cold, it's snowy. It's dark. You and I have both lived in places that have snow in the winter. It's all well and good when the snow first falls, but the moment that traffic gets on it, it turns into a dark, oily sludge of wet and cold. It doesn't matter how nice the area is, it's gross. And it just stays that way until spring. Well, it turns into a crust and then it stays that way till spring. Much like our holidays here, they have a midwinter pageantry and it is religious. It's all about Telu, who we don't have a lot of information for, but we will be getting some more information specifically from Trappist, in the next episode, in fact. We recognize that Telu is the figurehead of the church. The Telin church is, I'd say, probably analogous to what the medieval Catholic church would have been like. They have kind of a savior figure in Telu and a devil figure in Incanus. The way that their midwinter pageantry works is you have the side of good, which is Telu, by all accounts and the side of evil in Incanus. And you have people given kind of carte blanche to be jerks. I would say actually in Waterside, they are not pranksters, they are violent. It's like giving them the right to be in the purge. Little bit, yeah. Until someone invokes the name of Telu. 
they don't seem to respect that either. We get an opportunity, though, for Quoth to brag about his family once again. Yeah, he has fond memories of dressing up in a demon mask and going around and just doing light mischief. And he says that his father was the best in Canis he ever encountered. Which, of course he would be. Like, Quoth's dad is kind and gentle and fun-loving. Quoth always sees his family through the best light, through these rose-colored glasses of memory. And it would be hard for him not to. I can't say I really blame him on that one. Me neither. He mentions over and over again that the demons are dangerous in Waterside. The demons are shown to be not pleasant in Hillside. Pretty dang frightening, to be honest. I would probably shirt my pants if I was in a situation where somebody came up behind me and picked me up and took your hat and threw it into a snowbank or something. It's a little more than just light mischief here, even in the nice section. People are doing things that we would probably consider assault through contemporary eyes. I like that he points out that no one was ever hurt when his dad was the one in charge. I doubt that's true. He probably just never saw it. Again, with those blinders. So, again, with the social commentary, because Tarbian is so large that they can't feasibly hire professionals... They have chosen instead to make money off of the holiday and they sell the masks of demons. So they earn a profit off of this. And then anyone who has the means to buy those masks has carte blanche to just go do whatever they want until they are banished by the name of Telu. It kind of reminds me of the medieval Catholic church selling indulgences to get people out of hell or purgatory. It's frightening. It really reinforces the messed up nature of social classes through history and up into today. Midwinter's Day is described as a day that people have their spirits high, everybody's excited, the pageantry of Telu is going to go after Incanus, and it seems like a good day to Quoth to go begging in Hillside. As he will learn, this is not a good idea. This will never be a good idea. But he's desperate. He's starving. He's been hiding from all of the people who have been harming others in the name of Telu or under the guise of it being okay. So he ventures out and he's instantly struck by the difference in atmosphere even between Waterside, which is dirty and everyone has that cruelty Everyone in that area seems to be jaded and hardened. And he goes to Hillside where people are treated with more reverence by the shopkeepers. If they look like they have money. If they look like they have money. Where customers are treated with more reverence by the shopkeepers, I should say. Where the streets are cleaner. Where people are dressed nicer. And you and I have recently been in a situation where... So there's a store called Fred Meyer in the Pacific Northwest. It's very much like Target, I guess, if we wanted to find a national chain that's kind of equivalent. It's an everything store. We went to an area that we've never really been to before. And we parked at a parking garage and all of the signs around it were, we are not responsible if somebody steals your stuff. 
even though it was a very bright sunny day, those signs made me feel on edge. And then we go to the Fred Meyer that's local to that space. And both you and I instantly felt like we were being watched more by people looking out for shrink. You couldn't navigate from one end of the store to the other without going around and shoved through different alleyways and the middle of the store was blocked off so you couldn't just do a straight from one end to the other. Anything that could easily be stolen or might have value on the streets was behind glass. To get to any of the areas that had something that might be deemed valuable, you had to go through a series of metal detectors and registers. You couldn't just walk in and out of, say, the cosmetics or the toiletries or what have you. You had to go through a detector and you had to check out any items that you purchased from there separately. You couldn't just take those into the front of the store and just buy them at the register there. There was a cashier stationed there. We went in there because we didn't know this area. We didn't know this particular Fred Meyer. We were just looking for something probably like aspirin. And we didn't get anything within the cosmetics area because that's the wrong area for what we were looking for. And we got called at by the cashier. We had to kind of say, no, we don't have anything. And it felt gross. And when you're in a situation where you're constantly being made to feel gross, you're not going to feel like you're being respected. And that means that you shouldn't respect the place that you are. It puts you on edge and puts you on the defense. And this is why when businesses treat their customers as potential thieves, even people who have no intention of theft start to feel a little bit like, well, if I'm being treated like a thief, maybe I should be one. Maybe I should look for ways around these things. People look to get around obstacles, not because they want to get away with something, but because they want to feel like they have some sort of control. That place felt like a trap. Yeah, felt like a prison. It was awful. And it's ostensibly the same store as they have in other nicer areas. But the Fred Meyer that we go to that's nearer to our home is laid out in a grid pattern like most grocery stores and it doesn't feel like you're being corralled. The attitudes we show towards the people who frequent our establishments will influence their attitudes back. That's just simple physics. For every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the woman that Quoth begs from on Hillside and compare her generosity with what he experiences with Trappist. He goes up and he puts on a bit of a display. He mentions that he kind of hams it up a bit, but he doesn't have to put too much mustard on this sandwich, so to speak, because he's already pretty pathetic. In response, she kind of gives this, oh, you poor dear. Here, have a silver penny, which at this point is more money than he's ever had in Tarbian. Her reaction, though, is one of pity. She isn't really seeing him as someone beyond his pitifulness. Well, beyond what she can see and observe with her eyes. And it's almost like she very rarely sees this. And it probably is true, because as we've seen, the guards in that part of Tarbian will not tolerate street kids in Hillside. I'd also like to point out that handing him a silver penny, it represents a lot to him. It represents a blanket and some food. 
and security for about half a month, which is honestly when I've had a small paycheck, how I've had to think about things. This hour's worth of my time is worth how many meals? When you're money insecure, when you're food insecure, having that lack reinforces the idea of that ledger. But that penny probably meant nearly nothing to the woman. It was an afterthought. In retrospect, because of its value to Kvoth, it painted a bit of a target on his back. Her generosity brought the attention of the guards because a shopkeeper essentially narked on him. All that ended up doing was getting him beaten up and abused. And we see the purpose of the police here is not to protect the general public. It is to protect the sensibilities of these wealthy few. You can see this in contemporary America where people of color driving through a wealthy neighborhood oftentimes get pulled over, not for breaking any laws, but because the police think the color of their skin makes them look suspicious. Makes them look like they don't belong in an affluent area. Right. For instance, I'm reminded of a story that Norm Rice used to tell. Norm Rice, for those of you who don't know, was the former King County executive in King County, Washington. He was in charge of all of the unincorporated areas outside of Seattle. This includes a lot of wealthy suburbs and the like. And so he naturally lived in a fairly well-to-do neighborhood. He drove a nice car. He dressed nicely. But he would oftentimes get pulled over at night driving home from work by the police who felt that a dark-skinned man shouldn't be in that neighborhood. And he'd have to show them his ID and show them that He's kind of their boss, but it happened so often. And this was someone who did nothing wrong. He just happened to look different from what the wealthy people expected. Those class structures and race structures have a profound effect on the makeup of our society. And they are not just. Just because it's always been this way is not a reason for it to stay that way. What happens to growth at this point shows some of the ugliness that is hinted at with there were shadows here as well. That cop doesn't just scare Kvothe. He doesn't just tell Kvothe to go back to Waterside. He beats the living shirt out of him. Because he's dared venture into this affluent area, dared asking people who have more to help him not starve. He is brutally beaten and kicked. And to make matters worse, he loses his penny. He is so desperate that he will sit there and sift through the grease and the snow with numb fingers in the dark, trying to find what he describes not as money, but as food and a blanket. It's hope. He is so badly beaten that he can't feel parts of his body as he's trying to limp back to his home, which is a rooftop hidden between three eaves. He has no shelter. He has no warmth. He's basically wearing rags at this point. His shoes are scraps, barely providing him any protection. And 
on those cold, dark days, in addition to just having all of this pain that he's experiencing, he's literally in a place where he could die. This could be a fatal attack. And to that point, he falls down face first in the snow. And much reminding me of the story of the little match girl. He feels warmth as he is freezing to death. And so here we get a little bit of contrast between the piety of the people who follow Telu and the actual care that the person who is dresses in Canis provides to this poor, starving, frozen, half-to-death little child. Because a 12-year-old is still a child. I'm struck by the fact that the person who played in Canis actually gives him first a full silver talent, which is... Quite a lot of money in this society. He says, here, kid, get safe, go. At this point in his role as in Canis on this day, he's on the run from Telu. He has no need to stop. And Canis is on the run, not just from Telu, but he is on the run from the hundreds of people who follow Telu. That could be really, really scary because the way that the procession, the way that the pageantry is described sounds so much like the rally that we heard of from Charlottesville with torches. Whereas Encanus's silver talent reflects moonlight, Telu's silver mask reflects torchlight. He's obviously someone of means. He probably paid a pretty good penny to the church to get the Encanus mask as opposed to just a generic demon mask. You think that that would be the case rather than him being hired? He's someone of means, one way or the other. He actually has a full silver talent that he can give away. The generosity is underpinned a little bit by the fact that Encanus's companion, who I'd like to point out is listed specifically as a woman, which is kind of nice because it's so often that you just see men depicted in all of these. But she is very clearly more worried about herself, more worried about saving her skin, more worried about this performative set of actions that they are supposed to be taking than she is about the kid that really could be dying. It's notable that Encanis here picks Quoth up and actually carries him out of the snowbank. That's more than just, here kid, I have a talent. He says... God's body, Holly, someone has beaten the hell out of this kid on Midwinter's Day, too. I'd like to point out that for some reason, we think that it is worse to be hateful on a specific day. It is somehow worse to be hateful on Christmas than it is to be hateful on the 17th of July. It is actually more hateful because the conditions are that much harsher. I mean, let's face it, any sense of warmth and welcome is purely artificial in the middle of winter. It is an act of human will that people are happy on Christmas Day or something. When you look at the conditions outside, it is colder, darker, more dreary, um, more dangerous for someone living on the streets. And I'm not trying to make an argument that it's okay to be hateful any other time. but. That beating that Kvothe took 
was especially hurtful because of the exposure that he got to the elements. And even with the generosity of Incanus that allows Quoth to buy a blanket and some food, he still probably got some hypothermia. And his hands are definitely frostbitten. He winds up with a fever and he winds up having to stay with Trappis long enough to not die. It's very touching and sad. I'd also, though, like to point out that somebody who is exposed to the elements of summer is not necessarily that much better off than someone who is being exposed to the elements of winter. Dead is dead. This is true. Heat stroke can kill just as much as hypothermia can. Fair. Not only does Incanus give him money, which, all well and good, gives Quoth his gloves, which I think was probably the more kind gesture in the immediacy because while Incanus is running, he is not in need of a silver talent, but he is also out in the elements and he is in need of his gloves. But to just give them to this kid, I think is a greater gesture of generosity. And you compare Incanus's generosity versus the woman in Hillside, Incanus is not prompted in any way. Quoth doesn't approach him. Quoth is literally lying in a bank of snow, face down, and Incanus just sees him and immediately knows this is someone in need and responds accordingly. Interesting the way that you say he sees Quoth. Quoth hasn't really moved. He's hidden himself a little bit in a doorway by the time that the pageantry passes by. But all eyes are for Telu. Ten minutes worth of people pass him by, and they are supposed to be the righteous, the religious, the loving, the caring, on the side of good, and no one sees him. Sometimes religion brings out the worst in people. This isn't to say that religion is bad. Sometimes it brings out the best in people. Witness Trappist. What sticks with me also is that there is a trail of blood behind him as he moves back to his home. And he's relieved that he is bleeding because a frozen foot would be worse. He stops at a place that he recognizes. A place that is full of merriment and light and warmth. And he sticks around the fringes. He specifically goes to the back of the laughing man and he specifically asks for a blanket and maybe some food. And he makes it clear that he can pay for it. Well, and one thing that I noticed here, he offers them money and initially they invite him in. But his response to hearing music, I think, brings up a trauma reaction in him, specifically the desire to flee just based on the trauma that he's experienced when his parents died and then when he was attacked when he first landed in Tarbian. And when he was attacked earlier that day. He's got all of these trauma associations. While the two kitchen girls treat him kindly, so far as it goes, I don't think they really understand his particular psychology here, but his response makes a lot of sense based on everything that we know about what he's experienced. Some of the sentences here are beautiful, and threading gently through it all, 
a lute played in the background. That lute, his loss of his father's lute. Sometimes things are not just things, they're talismans. I keep a lot of things in my pockets to fidget with. They're touchstones. In some cases, they're dice. In some cases, they're literally stones. But I also, when I'm in a particular headspace, panic if I can't find one of my touchstones, one of my things in my pockets. It's not a huge loss to me if one of my fidgets drops out of my pocket and somebody else picks it up, not financially, but emotionally. Hearing that lute probably set something off in him. It's a reminder of what he's lost. I think that he's got a little bit of survivor's guilt. He feels responsible for losing his father's loot, even though that was in no way his fault. The music was like a memory of family, of friendship, and warm belonging. He used to be, up until this year, in a place where he felt warmth and love and safety at this time of year. Now it's just dangerous and cold and painful. I asked earlier today before we started recording if you would rather my seven words that I choose from the book be heartbreaking or be hopeful. We're going to go with hopeful as my official seven words, but I think it's also important to point out the heartbreak. He specifically moves away from the door so that he can't hear what brings all of these painful memories back. And the seven words that are heartbreaking, they were simpler pains, easier to endure. Speaking of his broken ribs, his hurt and bleeding foot, the pain in his hands from being so cold that they were numb and then being chafed back into some sort of feeling are simpler pains to endure than the ones that are ripping his heart out. They're things that people can see. I think it's an important reminder that a lot of times the hurts that we as human beings are experiencing are things that people can't see on the outside. That person that we see that seems like they've got it all together may be in immense pain. We wouldn't know unless they told us. It reminds me of how people that you might know are in emotional turmoil might be performative on social media. They might be showing you a side that they want to project while the interior self is falling apart. The generosity that is shown here, I wonder if it would be as generous if it wasn't midwinter, like specifically the day. Kvothe is given a blanket full of food, warm food, not scraps, not things from the larder, the same things that would be given to the people who frequented the inn who didn't look like they were half starved or dead. He's given a warm blanket. He's given money back. There was no guarantee he'd get money back. And he's clutching it. That word keeps coming up, clutching. It's happened the last three times that we've talked about his possessions. He is in a desperate state. He still hasn't rebuilt himself fully from the trauma that he endured 
and he cannot accept physical touch, much less affection, but even just, here, come with me. Again, I think it's that trauma reaction. He hasn't fully healed, and I don't know that he ever fully heals. As we've discussed, the patterns and lessons that he has learned during his time on the streets and time in the wilds have fundamentally altered him and the way he approaches other people. He specifically states that people mean pain. We find out a few sentences later what was wrapped in the blanket. Spiced wine, a huge turkey breast, and fresh bread. And as the conditions become harsher, he curls himself up next to a chimney for warmth. And he hears merriment. He hears other people's joy as he himself is essentially a little ball of misery and pain. Told you. Cheery subject. So instead of us continuing to go into how this affects real life, because we have already kind of discussed this, I would like to encourage people to think about how they deal with generosity. If they give to food banks or to can drives, if they give to charitable causes only during winter, or if there's a possibility of saying, hey, maybe they need something in March. Maybe we need to give to these causes in March or July. Maybe we don't just think about how we treat other people near the end of the year. And I'd also encourage certain things. Having helped and volunteered at multiple food banks, your dollar goes a lot further if you give money. But I'd also encourage trying to think of things that other people don't provide. Healthy food. Think about what you're giving these people. They're people. If you wouldn't eat it, give them something better. Also, consider hygiene products. People who need tampons or pads need those year-round. And it's oftentimes regarded falsely, I would say, as a luxury. But this is just an essential thing that people need. On that note, people who need those things, if they don't have them, it makes being able to work during your period nearly impossible. If you want people to pick themselves up by their damn bootstraps, which is bullshit, and they don't have the means to just live, they're at a huge disadvantage. There were times where I have gotten hygiene products such as pads and tampons and put them into bathrooms at the places that I've worked. It's an honor system. And to that point, most people don't take advantage of your charity and use it for something other than their survival. It's cynical to believe that they would. And even if they do, so what? There are so many other people who do need it and who do use it for the intended purpose. Why punish the many people who use these things and gracefully and lovingly accept your kindness and your generosity? Why 
refuse those people your generosity for fear of a few other people taking advantage of it. And if you are concerned about how your charity dollar is used, consider looking through Charity Finder to make sure that you're looking for reputable and effective charities. Look for places that don't discriminate. There are a lot of people in the LGBTQ community who are not to say that anyone who is seeking out charity is privileged, but they are less privileged, especially people of color. They are more discriminated against, even by people who claim to be giving generously. And make sure that the bulk of the money that you give goes to actually helping people and not to paying executive boards. In a perfect world, you wouldn't need to give to charity because our society would take care of those less fortunate. But we don't live in a perfect world, and charity is our least bad option. And before anyone says taxes should pay for it, taxes should pay for it. Taxes don't pay for it. And until they do, this is our option. Now we come to the point where we are going to speak about our phronemos. Our Aristotelian model of practical wisdom. This week it is my turn. The person that I have chosen is the person in the Encanus mask. What I find interesting about that part of the book is that Encanus is supposed to be the evil one. Encanus is supposed to represent demons and devils. And demons and devils in our mythology and in the mythology of the world that Quoth inhabits are the evil, are the wrong, are the ones that you should not live up to. And yet, the man who wears the Encanus mask, whose name is Garrick, he stops what he's doing. He's one of the two main figures of the Talon Holiday. He represents the evil, but he acts with the most generosity and kindness. Yeah, I noticed that too. He did so with an immediacy, seeing someone who was trying not to be seen specifically. Well, at that time, Quoth is in a snowbank, face first. He could have been left for dead. Chances are that if the pageantry had gone by him, they would have left him for dead. No one would have seen him. And yet, Incanus sees him, picks him up, gives him money and his gloves. I'm sure that we've all been around people who have had misfortune, and all we want to do is pretend that that misfortune doesn't exist. We see people who fall down and hurt themselves, and we assume that someone else is going to help them. Or we assume there's nothing that we can actually do. And... Right now, I'm kind of feeling a little bit of that shown towards us. What's happened recently right now for us is that our hard drive that carries all of our audio is physically damaged, and we don't know if we'll be able to get it all back. And the episode number nine that we recorded before this is only on that drive, and we can't get it right now. I was in the middle of editing it before we started recording this. And I've been reaching out, kind of yelling into a void. 
trying to get people to notice that this is frustrating and hurtful to me. This is a project that I've put a lot of work into for the last six to nine months. And it's pretty much all gone because of a stupid mistake. And I'm getting a lot of silence when I express my pain. And I see this with other people who express their pain. People are quick to congratulate you when you have nice things going on in your life, but they are also quick to just not acknowledge the painful parts. And I think it's important to acknowledge the painful parts. If you see someone drop things, someone drops a coffee at the coffee house that you're at, you can go help clean it up. Don't just stare and go, I wish I could do something. You can do something. And Incanis shows that. Garrick shows that. Maybe you have other things to do. Maybe you have places to be. But that person will remember the kindness you've shown. In fact, for me, someone that I rarely speak to that I went to school with messaged me and said, hey, I work for someone that does data recovery. Send it to us and we'll give you a fair price. I haven't spoken to him in nearly five years. And that little gesture of kindness, it meant a lot. And even if I can't get episode nine back, and even if we have to re-record it, and even if episodes one through nine are gone in their raw form forever, I'm not going to forget that he was very kind and offered this. And as we see here, Kvothe remembers Incanis, that specific Incanis. He lived in Tarbian for three years, three midwinters. And he remembers that first Incanis, crystal clearly. As we will see in further chapters, even though that kindness was shown to him, he does not feel safe showing that kindness to others. And that's heartbreaking. But there's also, when you have privilege, it is easier to give of yourself. It might not be emotionally easier to give of yourself, but it is less of a burden on you to give of yourself. And we see that with how in Canada's Maybe that was his only pair of gloves, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe he's well off. Maybe he's not. We don't know. He's well off enough to have a nice pair of gloves and to have a talent that he was carrying around with him to spend. He gave these without a second hesitation. That instant recognition of distress in another human being was, yes, I'd say an act of true generosity. Even though he had a friend with him that was encouraging him to leave this kid alone, his friend Holly was saying, somebody else will take care of him. He knew that that was bullshit. That's very powerful. And Holly represents sort of that voice of your everyday practical concerns that you go through. Whereas Garrick is responding in that immediate need breaking through all of those roadblocks that we put up towards responding to others in need. 
Good choice. Thank you. So now that we've got that out of the way, do you have some interesting facts to share? I do. I do. So this one is pretty interesting. It is called Silks in Space. Pigs in Space? Silks. So most materials are made more brittle by exposure to the extreme cold of space, which makes the behavior of the silk from the silkworm species Antheria pirnii. Good job on the Latin. Yeah. When exposed to extreme temperatures as low as negative 196 degrees Celsius, researchers found that the tensile strength of the silkworm's silk increased, which they attribute to the tiny fiber structures called nanofibrils inside the threads. Not all silk is created equal, though. Dragline silks spun by the Nephilia orb-weaving spiders and cocoon threads from the domestic silk moth Bombyx mori saw increases in tensile strength down to negative 60 degrees Celsius, but decreased later on. Thanks to these findings, scientists and engineers hope that these could lead to new natural or artificial fibers that could be used as construction materials or garment fabric for use in hostile environments such as the poles, outer space, or other planets. The eye-catching piece might be the possibility of giant silk webs spun by robot spiders to catch astro junk in space, like something from a David Bowie fever dream. <laughs> that is pretty cool. I like hearing about that. Nature finds a way. When you look at our biggest advances in technology, oftentimes we take our inspiration from the natural world. You have figured out that I like science. I've known this for... <laughs> you talk about it like this is some new discovery on my part. I've known this <laughs> for a long time. Years. Well, I actually didn't know that one. It's really cool, and I do find it very interesting. I'm glad you like it. So now it is time for us to share our seven words from the book and seven words from life. I believe it is your turn to share words from the book. Absolutely. And as I said earlier, I did ask if you would prefer something that was heartbreaking or hopeful. And since I've already shared the heartbreak, it's time to share some hope. May all your stories be glad ones. I love that. Both said that to the lady who gave him a silver penny because he was not expecting something that he felt was that generous. He's been out on the streets for two months at this point and he hasn't lost all of his hope yet. The full saying that he says is, may all your stories be glad ones and your roads be smooth and short. It sounds like one of those Irish proverbs, which kind of tugs at my heartstrings. Hits me right in the feels. It's sweet and it's kind and it was like he was trying to give her a gift back. And it was this oasis of beauty right before some really ugly bit of the story. Thank you. That was a good one. Do you have anything to say about it? You've already said the important stuff. All I could say is co-signed. So my seven words were ones that I said last night when we were dealing with our data loss issue. I love you. We're not done yet. 
And it's that point where hope crystallizes into determination. I think finding that point is really important. In any serious endeavor, you're going to run across a point where simple hope is no longer enough and you have to harden it into something more. It's been said that hope isn't a strategy, but it's what keeps you looking for one. That was really sweet. Please say the seven words again. I love you. We're not done yet. I think that applies to this endeavor. I love that you still want to keep working on the podcast. It means a lot, even as we face possibly having to redo a lot of our work from the last couple weeks. On top of that, just the greater we are not done. There wasn't a worry about that. And I want you to know that you're right. I love you too. And we are very sorry to our audience. We know that most of you have just vomited in your car. Or your office. Please apologize to your coworkers. You can blame us. It's okay. We'll take the hit. <laughs> and with that, I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week as we discuss chapters 23 through 25 of The Name of the Wind through a lens of contrasting stories and parables. We'd like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. And we have little whiny kitten outside. Podcat. You got your one little taste of freedom inside of this room. His holiday. His holiday. And he used it by spending his time under the bed. (sighs) Muffins. Am I right? (laughs) Can we hear him in the mic?